supposed to be Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Last night, I dreamt I went to Mandalay. If every version of Rebecca is going to start out like this, so can our show. This is... No, no, they will not start off like this. In fact, there should be no future renditions of Rebecca. There you go. Hot take over, review done. Actually, no, this proves that you can have a new version which develops and grows in the original. Uh, yes, we are. Film Fight Club are talking about Rebecca later on as we are talking back to Jillianaire. This is film writer, journalist, all things about town, Glenn Falkenstein. Hello. Sydney filmmaker, Chris Evans. Hello. And freelance writer and critic, and also all man about town, as is Chris Brat Nehru. Hello, hello, man about town. Three men in the radio station. But I mean, we're coming at you from the radio station, but we're recording this from our houses. So yes, yeah, we're not social really distancing con- continues. Yeah, we're not really about. We still are te- technically about town, but we're not about town. But we are, but some traditions do continue because it is the 2SCR Radiothon. We're here talking about 2SCR and you should subscribe because 2SCR is amazing and we are looking for your support to continue doing the amazing things the station does, supporting the amazing shows and groups from a technical perspective and else because we wouldn't be able to put on the show or any of the other shows without your support and we do appreciate it and do value it, dear listener. 2SER is wild and wacky. Whenever I tune into 2SER, I have no idea what kind of niche music subgenre I'm going to hear or some really nitty gritty political conversation. 2SER allows us to run this show that's primarily focused on film and movies in cinemas at a time when cinema is on life support. 2SER lets us go nitty gritty into weirdo subject matter because we know there's weirdos out there who appreciate that and we're only able to do it because of your generous support. Definitely. I mean, 2SCR is the only place where you would have a show like The Sonic Assassin right after a show like Foam Fight Club, you know, which is the two most diverse opposite on the spectrum of shows that you can find right after each other. Yeah. If you want that kind of diversity of content and community radio and three critics who care about community and cinema and Sydney movies... And you. You should call 95149500 and donate now. But let's not forget, Film Fight Club also follows stages. Like, where else are you going to get such in-depth coverage of theatre in Sydney? It's the benefit that radio provides and that it's a local voice. It's wonderful yes. theatre coverage. And a theatre also is, a, is an industry that is on life support at the moment. A lot of theatre isn't going ahead. Very few have been able to. Certainly Belvoir just down the road is starting up again. And stages are some of the ones bringing you this coverage and promoting what is being done in the, in the industry, in the industry, in the space. And as for the Sonic Assassin, where else would, like, it's, it's, I love the branding of the show. It's love. It's in a wonderful way. So misleading. His voice is so melodic and nice and lovely. But as is the intro, as, as is the intro, it's, it's nice just to finish the show and just hear that calming. We've been fighting for half an hour and then the Sonic Assassin just comes to soothe and massage. Make everything okay. Yeah. <laughs> Is. And honestly, but you know, 2SCR is the home of some of cutting edge reporting. Some of my best friends, who I still call friends, have graduated from The Wire, which is uh, the 2SCR's reporting. And they've also moved on to the ABC and become actual journalists and now are much more famous. Than they always, with me. They, they always were actual journalists. They just, I mean, actual journalists are now no longer friends with me. I mean, that way. Right, right. They have moved on into better social circles while I am still here on 2SER giving you hot takes about cinema. 
Yeah, but but which is there's nowhere else where you would rather be, right? Which of course, towards the hour is so great, which is why you can call us to support nine five one four nine five double zero. Yeah, I have a lot of fun to see Rod and the wire crew when I could. They're always there and there's always, it, it feels like the news from the Aaron Zorkin show where there's a bunch of TV screens with prime ministers here and presidents here and this crisis happening here and everyone's running around. What's the story gonna be today? What are we focusing on? But unlike a lot of news places, which will go not so in depth on so many stories, the wire actually, they'll focus on a few, several, but they'll pick a story and really go into detail. And I appreciate that because I like that a long form reporting and I like the focus the wire brings for the other shows and they're fun. Like the, you, you may not, it may not come across in the, some of the reporting, which is very direct and very serious for good reason, but it's very serious subject matter, but they're a fun crew. I hope you're listening because they're probably out there drinking over zoom, just like we're done for the day, which is what we do. Sometimes we just, we, we, we're actually always just drinking. We, we need to get the alcohol in us to, to fight. And if none of this excites you, then there are actual prizes up for grabs. So, you know, if you're one of those capitalist people who want something quid pro quo, if I'm donating, what do I get? Well, you go in the running to win one of these exciting prizes. One of my favorites on here is a family pass to the Archibald Winnie and Suleiman prizes for 2020 at the Art Gallery New South Wales. That is a good prize. Actually. Art critic and a snob, which I love to be. And you mm. want to be in your dinner parties, name dropping all those art exhibition names. This is a family pass. Yeah, just make sure that, you college, right? that you can just be in the running. And, you know, I love to be. So if you want to name drop some art, come at me. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool setup this year. Um, and I saw them like, yeah, I haven't been yet. I kind of want to win that because I want to go to the prizes. There's also a one-year subscription to the MCA. Like, this is like peak art snobbery. That's the, you really want to be an art tip, snob. Tip your art museum, guys. Yeah. I hope anyone listening to uh, the radio here knows what the MCA is. I mean, music. If you don't, it's time to go. If you don't know what the MCA is, why are you even listening to us here? But in the case you don't know what the MCA is, you can win a pass to visit them, which is, would be the best thing. Yeah, there's, there's no better way than to actually go. It's honestly the best date place. Like, it's such a great, pro like, hmm, which, wait. Wait, where do you want to go? The MCA. There's always revolving exhibits. There's always fun oh, stuff. No, I, it's I've spacious. Not so good dates at the MCA. So it's uh, a bar at the top. Like it's that's true. But then people look at art and then they expect you as the date accompanying the date to explain the art. And then I'm just like, I'm just here because you know I thought I could take you out in a nice place. Anyway, this okay. Is look, MCA is great. But um, that thing they do, uh, like, I think they're not doing it this year, but they do a thing where it's like, we've got DJs on the roof and it's, it's open at nighttime and it's all hip. Oh, when they try to be hip? Oh, yeah, I get yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Apparently that used to be really cool. Um, the festivalists used to run it, people who were involved years and years ago in Kino, Sydney, um, and graduated to projects like that. And apparently it was great. And since then, they've moved on. These days when I went, it was ridiculous. It was like you walk into a room with this big exhibit um, and there's someone like slut dropping and, and taking selfies in front of it. And it's like, is this, is this the way we, we consume art in 2020? The one but, actually. <laughs> so, so do go to the MCA, but not on those nights. Yes. <laughs> the, the one really great thing that does happen on the roof is the Fresh Flicks Festival, which sadly didn't go ahead this year and hopefully will. It usually happens during Vivid, which is also 
postponed. But yeah, there's a cool art shop there. There's always great indigenous exhibits. There's uh, pieces there that have been there for quite some time that actually are just quite static and you know reliable and great and it's free also parts that are free some of them are some of the exhibits are paid and yeah, that's obviously what the like, yeah. but you know what is free but isn't free to a cr <laughs> free for you to listen to but only because of the generosity of our subscribers well done chris well played so call 9514-9500 and you could be a supporter of generous talent. If uh, you don't have the energy to actually speak to someone on the phone, you can just visit 2ser.com slash forward slash subscribe. Subscribe, sorry. Or Radiothon 2020, 2ser.com forward slash Radiothon 2020. Yes, uh, and if you guys are unsure why we're calling it Radiothon, it is, yes, we have rebranded from Supporter Drive. If some of you are wondering, Whoa, this is a new name? Yes, it is. We are new, we are fashionable, we are hip, we are on the radio. MCA. That's why it's a radio song. Yeah, and you should, but you should call in because there are fun people. There are no people who aren't fun at 2SCR, myself accepted. And they're interesting. They're always working on different shows. They have a lot to talk about. They love to talk. We've all been stuck inside in the 2SCR building, which is this beautiful building internally, but it's a big block. And we miss the outside world. We miss people. We miss talking to people. And we love to talk to you. So do call. Uh, yeah, the, a new intro, uh, addition to the 2SCR law, Film Fight Club law has been added now, hasn't it? Like we, we, I lied earlier when I said that we are in our rooms. We're all actually in a, a building in Ultimo locked up. I, I actually quarantining am since much. I actually am recording for a big gray sound booth that looks very ominous. Um <laughs> that's gonna attest to. But yeah, that there's Chris, no, sorry, I was just Chris, spreading COVID. Oh my God. It wasn't that funny, Chris. <laughs> but there, there are different levels oh, of yeah, your Rebecca opening. Where's okay. Yeah, we're 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 about as uh it, it's about as gothic and dreary as aspects of Rebecca, which we are looking forward to talking about on the podcast. But we couldn't talk about Rebecca and Kajillionaire and what is going on in the cinema scene if it wasn't for you. So please do call them. The number is 95149500. And there are different levels. There are different subscriber levels. Um, there are standard supporters for 80. There's concession for 40. There's passionate for 160. And there's lifetime for 600. And God, if you, if, if you call up during Film Fight Club and... Uh, get any of these supporter levels let us know what you want us to fight about pick a fight with us we will fight about it we are exactly I feel like if if you get one of the more expensive ones i feel like you're entitled to choose five or ten subjects for us to talk about yeah watch those movies like like, you know if you are a fan of as long as and you want us to fight about which mission impossible movie is a better mission impossible movie number one any request you have that doesn't violate uh, the rules of public decency as far as 7.30 p.m. radio shows go, we will cover it. And then we have more um, leeway on the podcast too. So. Exactly. So, I mean, things can still have time to get a little bit X-rated. But, but just generally, you know, I was just thinking, I'm seeing some of these prizes and they're actually beyond the art snobbery. Some of these are really cool if you're just a normal person as well. So, yeah, you know, they're one of the ones that I really <laughs> All like. of these are really cool if you're a normal person, to be quite clear. Yeah, I mean, art snobs are a different species. Yeah, we, we, I'm just excluding them. The, the, the listeners are like us. There, Yeah, there's some cool stuff. There's, there's the Sydney Airport um stay voucher at this cool hooking hotel which i love because i haven't been to the airport in a while and i don't think i'm going to the airport for quite some time and that's they're running these flights now for like 800 bucks we can fly around the country and just 
see Uluru. And this is, I'm going to do that. This is kind of fun. I'm going to the airport, guys. Like, what? Oh my God. It's like, either you're exotic or a thrill seeker or a billionaire, but you're going to the airport and I, I, I want that cachet right now. So yeah, there's I mean, this cool prize. How cool would that be? Just be like, I'm going to the airport, not to fly, but like I'm staying at the airport. Like, you know, how, how amazing is that? It's, it's such, such a strange thing, isn't it? Like the hotel looks great looking at the pictures on the Tourcia website. It looks great, but, um, but yeah, like, it's so 2020, isn't it? Like, you know, you know what my favorite, uh, in the airport. What my favorite uh, giveaway is out of all these? It's that Young Henry's Brewery Tour. So apparently you and 12 friends can enjoy a 90-minute brewery tour and beer tasting. I didn't even know beer tasting was a thing. I thought wine beer tasting is a thing. Beer tasting is what, a what, thing. what do you mean beer tasting? How can beer, I've been to like beer every, taste exactly I, the same? It makes no sense. I, I'm ashamed of the amount of, actually I'm not ashamed of the amount of beer tastings I've been to. I'm very proud of it. But yes, I have been to, I actually have been to a beer tasting at Young Henry. So I'm going to test how much fun it is. Try the motorcycle oil. It's their one dark beer and it's really good. It's a nice fun bit there just behind um, Edmore Road. It's a lot of fun. And also you can go afterwards to have dinner at Cairo Takeaway, which is the beautiful Egyptian restaurant around the corner. Yeah. It's perfectly located. It's a fun thing to do. Young Henry's are great. And I know they've been pushing lo- to support local businesses and locals as it has two SCR, of course, during this time. So yeah, um, prizes, 95149500. Get 12 friends together. If you don't have, make 12 friends. We'll be your friend. <laughs> well, yeah, invite us. Invite us. Talk we'll about movies. Too. You just have to make about whatever you want to be of your tasting. And then, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's one and a half, 90 minutes, like one and a half hours, which is pretty good. It's valued at 500 bucks. That's three times as long as this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can drink that much beer. I mean, you like movies, so you might as well like alcohol, right? I mean, they go together. There's a lot of drinking on Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's a good place to go, and if you and if you if you want to drink more latte, you can go to the Duke, or you can go to um, Hopsters, or the new Grifter Brewery that opened up down the road. So that's a cool I, thing. Actually, Glenn, because you've been to beer tastings, uh, tell me what is the etiquette? I mean, how much beer can you taste before it just becomes like a proper skull, or like you know, when you start chugging and it's like this is no go. Well, how much is- beer tasting is it? Yeah, beer tasting is usually in middies. So it kind of becomes obvious when you um, are getting too many middies because they just pile up around you. But usually being a platter, which is six to often eight at a time, um, 12 taps have, you can get eight middies, I think, which is pretty cool. But young Henry's grip to the offer six middies, and I think that's very fair. Um, so uh, do, while we're, we are, we want to talk about support drive, the number again is 95149500. But before we continue, we just want to talk quickly about the news of the week and what is happening around town. Something also we wouldn't be able to do if we didn't have to see because they let us talk about and work with these amazing festivals and the indie scene, all these great groups. Not only that, as I was saying, it's the ability of local radio to give you news that's relevant to you as a Sydney sider. Um, yes. I think one of the main reasons why we could actually give you updated week after week uh, happenings around what film festivals are happening, what local screenings are going on uh, around Sydney specifically to basically explore, which otherwise if we were in a commercial radio station or in any other platform would be more difficult or we'd have to fight a lot more here we have the freedom mm-hmm. and fun and expertise to actually give you what's happening around Sydney. 
and we're we are geniuses like to as we are. So in terms of what is happening around town, it's not just around town, but also streaming locally at you. Just so you know, um, the Adelaide Film Festival is in full swing. And as is it runs in simultaneously with the, with the Sit Down, Shut Up and Watch Film at New Media Festival, both most of which is happening in person, but some of which you can stream online. The Smartphone FlickFest SF3, which are in their sixth year, which we covered last week, are streaming online and catch all the finalists, including um, the film that we submitted until the 25th of October. The Disney Drive-In is happening from later in the week. So that's uh, a few sing-alongs, a few big Disney films all happening at Moore Park. Um, you can catch also the Karingai Drive-In, which is happening right now. Drive-In cinemas are incredibly popular. The um, Noosa International Film Festival, some of it's streaming online. The Indian Film Festival Melbourne, some of it's streaming online from the 23rd through to the 30th. The Fantastic Film Festival Australia is having another event on October 23rd as a cinema reborn coming up. The Geelong Pride Film Festival is screening online from Friday as is the Byron Bay International Film Festival. The Jewish International Film Festival have an event on uh, Saturday evening and live stream and a Q&A. The Polish Film Festival also um, starts on this weekend from October 25th. And Philmonic Melbourne is happening next week, October 27th, which Sydney filmmakers can submit to and get in on. So do get your flicks in. So that's some of the streaming events and events in person happening around town. We're seeing recently that a couple of the film festivals have started doing some in-person events. Certainly SF3 did a simultaneous live stream and in-person event, a night of horror. Did and uh, did their re come back in person? And I think we're going to start to see this more film festivals doing events in person, but also streaming, which is exciting, which means people can go as they wish and as they're comfortable. And we'll be bringing you more coverage of those over the coming weeks and months because that is something 2SCR um, allows facilitates. We love having festival guests on. We love having filmmakers on and we wouldn't be able to do it without you. So please do subscribe. It's so important. The number again is 9514-9500. And speaking of the art scene, there's some other cool prizes. Um, the Casula Powerhouse Pass to the Arts Centre there. The marketing director of the Sydney Film Festival actually went over to head up the centre. So he's running some cool stuff over there. Um, there's record packs. I know, actually, this is great. To see how I've always been part of an amazing record scene. I'm um, just going to the vaults and seeing piles and piles of records. The Glebe Record Fair and Newtown Record Fair, the latter of which is supported by 2SCR. I've not been able to run this year. The only record fair I'm aware of is happening at the dock in Redfern once a month. So 2SCR helping keep the record scene alive. Good on them. And I do well, love my vinyl. Glebe's voucher. So, I mean, as someone who loves books, that's probably like just what? three books, which is not many, but you know, if, if, if you want, and if you want free books, which I love because, you know, books are expensive and I read too many of them. I think this is what's what I would be hoping if I want to win a prize that I win a clean book voucher, but you can win it too, because I'm already part of the station and I would happily give it away if I win it. There you go on the record. Glee books used to open up onto my house and I was so happy because I could just walk down, like be there within like 30 seconds. It's funny. I'm, I'm reading this now of all the locations and one of them was Blackheath. I was in Blackheath all of two weeks ago and I was like, yeah, Glee books, they're here. This is great. It's like that nice little bit of home. It's like seeing a Starbucks in on the opposite side of the world and like some rural part of whatever country you're in. And it's, oh, um, I feel just a little bit of home warmth and Glee books brings that to us as does this voucher, which you can get. If you subscribe as a potential prize, that's 9514-9500. Um, yeah, there's a, a prize, the Mint, a Teetotaler. Yeah, Teetotaler Experience Pack worth 240 Now, they're not at their store in Newtown anymore. 
which is sad um, because I was like, Chris, you're on mute, which is sad because they're still there in the galleries though. Still there in the galleries, but yeah, that was, I was sorry to see that, but you can still bring a little bit of tea turtle home with you. We have their, ch uh, their chai. It's really good. It, it, it's funny if you win teetotaler and the young henry's together and you have to pick you have to go to one or the other you can do both like an either order is appropriate you might need some tea after an excessive day at young henry's not that we encourage excessive drinking drink responsibly and uh oh actually here's a cool one um the 220 voucher for the bower used repair center now something about bower that's very cool that's very cool so that stood out to me as cool that's all i'm saying yeah, I like it. Um, there's some cool thing about Bauer. Um, something to be sorry, actually working with them on is the Art from Trash exhibit at 107 Products in Redfern. These, this is the sort of thing that doesn't get the support it deserves and 2SCR out there promoting it and putting it out there. I went to this exhibit on the weekend. It's only on in pro the projects next until next weekend. They had a two weeks event at Parramatta and now at Redfern. It's only the second year running. It's really great. Um, to promote environmentalism, sustainability, artists have repurposed what is generally considered trash into beautiful pieces of art. There's a fantastic one um, by a local artist, which is just from pens and biros in the style of the opera house. Um, there's a beautiful por portraits. There's great ones using dummies. It's a lot of great, it's a lot of great. It's open, it's free like 2SCR, but um, they do need support as there's 2SCR. So do head on down to Art From Trash. It's great that they're doing it. Good on Bow, good on 2SCR. And yeah, uh, that number again is 9514-9500. And yeah, like, we like to see we're actually i'm kind of missing just hanging out there all the time just seeing i mean it's, it's one of uh, my favorite locations because palace cinemas is right opposite and next to it is spice alley so you can have a nice you know dinner go for a movie basically record we would used to do that quite a bit we used to record we used to go then have dinner or basically do it the other way around have dinner plan out the show then come across the road record the show then watch the next week's uh, quota film, The Palace, and then discuss, and then go home and get ready for the next week. So it's it's one of the wonderful centrally located places on the planet, and I'm glad that it's uh, it's around because honestly, where else can you find such independent uh, views about everything, not just movies? And I think that's one of the fascinating things about 2SER is that it continues to support and champion independent views and talent. Well, we don't have restrictions, basically. We can't slander people and that's about it. Um, yeah. That's one of the, the best things about independent radio like this. It's a non-commercial organization, essentially, and we can do what we want, you know? Yeah, on that, and I've got to give 2SR credit for this because commercial places, a lot of other places wouldn't do this. But obviously, um, when something comes to where they get a suggestion or they, someone reaches out to them, they say, hey, here's something you can cover. Here's something that's an option open to you, something we can facilitate. But they never told us ever, well, you have to cover this or you can't cover this. A lot of places will do that. We appreciate that. We do have uh, the discretion to cover what we think is the great emerging film and art scene in Sydney. That's wonderful. I'm so glad to SCR um, facilitate that we can do that. And um, we would, and that's because of events like this. So yeah, if you can, if you can subscribe, that'd be great. We do appreciate and it. And it's, it's look, it's, it's a terrible time for the art scene, especially for community radio and community 
arts in general. It relies on support from people uh, like yourselves who are the community and we do it for you essentially. Uh, there's never been a more important time to contribute because honestly, the arts has been uh, very devastated. Rock, devastated. You, we know how much the cinema chains have been affected. We're not even sure whether we are going to go back to any kind of normal in terms of big blockbuster releases. When that's we're going, yeah, we're, we're going to discuss that. Uh, should we discuss that now? Yes, let's have a quick bit of a chat about that. Um, there's two big news this week regarding Disney. There's one thing that's really, really, really huge, though. Yeah, this is the bigger one, in fairness. Disney have announced that going forward, due to a corporate restructuring, where they're putting pretty much the entire motion picture department into the streaming department of Disney, and all future theatrical releases from Disney will just be um, day one theatrical screenings of movies released the same day on Disney+. Plus. So every, uh, there'll be no exclusive theatrical run anymore. Essentially, going forward, all Disney's movies are streaming movies. Um, it's crazy news because it, it basically means they're saying that they think cinemas are done. I think reading between the lines, that's what they're saying. You know, the number of people who are going to go to a film is going to be dramatically cut down when it's available, not with the subscriber model that they trialed with Mulan and was reported to be unsuccessful, um, yeah. but for free on streaming. Um, and it's especially huge because it's Disney that this move is coming from because over the past decade, Disney have really established... They own yeah, they've established a monopoly over the theatrical market. They always played really hardball with cinemas, making them agree to not so good terms in order to carry their films. And cinemas had to because who else is bringing in the money but Disney with their big blockbuster releases. And now after creating that market dominance, they're going to create a massive void by pulling all the exclusive content. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I, I feel like... It's gone. all apply to, in a retrospective sense, about movies that were already scheduled to release in 2020? Yeah, I don't think... I feel like... Or 2021? Yeah, I think you're going to see Black Panther and whatever come on day one on Disney+, Plus because they're also announced yeah. that they're releasing Soul, um, the Pixar movie, for free. On Christmas. Yeah, this has gone strangely underreported. I diverge slightly with Chris in that I don't think they're forsaking the cinematic market. They're obviously sticking with it. They're expecting to, some of their windfall to come from major releases being released in the cinema. What I think it says is that Disney is so confident in their branding and their products and the popularity of their films that they know that if people are going to see the film cinemas at all, or in any normal case, are only going to see a few films a year, that they're going to make it a Marvel film or a Disney film. And that it means not that they're forsaking the market, but they think they have such a share of it that um, they won't lose a significant amount in the in the what is the what they consider a broader transition from cinematic releases to generally general consumption through streaming, which no. is certainly the trend we're seeing happening over many years, which has been exacerbated, I feel, as we've discussed in previous shows by the pandemic. I really don't think that's seeing the big picture. Um, I think simply doing this is is in itself going to cause a massive decline in the cinema, like in in the number of cinemas. I, I wouldn't surprise me if the flow and effect of this is like either event or Hoyts go bankrupt, for example, on a local level. This is going to cause an immediate shrink of the theatrical market. Yes, people still would out, but the question is, uh, some people would still go out to see it, but what portion of the box office would you lose for an Avengers film 
if that were available for free with a subscription service from day one? I'm going to say a huge portion. I'm going to say at least 50%. That, that means that cinemas can't, um, sorry. Let, let's just be clear here. This is not something Disney would be doing if not for the pandemic. And they dragged their feet, even though it is a drastic step, they dragged their feet on doing this. They kept on delaying Black Widow and they trialed the premium pay model with Mulan because releasing movies on streaming simply isn't profitable. Like, unless you, you have a huge, huge critical mass of subscribers to Disney+, Plus, it's never going to be as profitable as the theatrical model where you have $200 million movies and with $150 million spent on marketing or whatever, but that's fine because you make a billion dollars. They may dollars reach that critical a, mass. They may reach that, but there's no guarantee. It's untested waters. I feel like, like they, they, if they are going ahead with this, you're going to see something much more like the Netflix model where there's a lot of films that aren't that expensive and maybe a couple of expensive ones per year because it's just not fe- financially feasible. If it were financially feasible to just be putting $200 million on Disney Plus all the time, I think they would have done that straight away. Um, I think it, they just felt like they had to do something because the news for cinemas in America is really not good. Some of the major chains are reported to be running out of money by early next year um, and hot on the, the heels of that news and the report of Mulan underperforming. Like, yeah, let's not forget they, they tried that model with Mulan where you pay 30 US dollars or 43 over here to rent it because they know that it's not profitable. They know that, you know, if you drop the cinemas, you're dropping a huge income source. So I can't see it as just a sign of confidence. I see it as really like a sign of desperation and a sign of, um, pessimism in the theater market and a need to do something. So we're going to be talking more on the podcast about a major moves at Disney. Um, so the other news regarding disclaimers they've put onto films as well as substantive reviews of the week, which are Kajillionaire and Rebecca, which are in cinemas and in streaming on Netflix respectively as of tomorrow. Please do subscribe to the support drive or just have a call up, have a chat, have a look at the website, 2SCR.com or give us a ring 95149500. We're back next week with more movie reviews and all things 2SCR. This has been Glenn Fallenstein, Chris Evans and Brad Nehru. Stay safe. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy well, movies. And um, thank you for joining us for the Radiothon. Good night. Welcome back to Film Fight Club where we're talking Gajillionaire and Rebecca, the new version very shortly. First, we just want to wrap on the Disney News of the Week, uh, which is that, yeah, they are looking at simultaneous streaming and cinematic releases, which is a huge shift to the industry in major respects. You know who's got to be pulling his hair out over this? James Cameron. He would have gone from thinking like, oh my God, I've got the might of Disney's marketing behind my new Avatar sequels, you know, perfect for my push for new cinema technology to, oh my God, this is going direct to video. This is not a video film. You cannot, I will not watch this on video. You have to watch it on the screen. There's 10,000 times the size of me. Yeah. I would accept it. Exactly. I mean, there are two things that I'm considering, which are probably the elephant in the room that uh, we probably should address. One is uh, if these are simultaneously releasing in cinemas and on streaming. For free. For free. Piracy is still going to go through the roof. I mean, we know Mulan, I mean, whatever the, the merits of the film, uh, it was still, 
it was pirated, the most pirated movies in terms of because nobody wanted to pay that kind of money. Yes, it's still going to be available for free, but still, uh, I think well for the subscription service to Disney Plus, to, to, tossing up uh, the prospect of should I subscribe to something like Disney Plus on top of something like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Stan, Movie, and so many other streaming services. If you look at the price model on a monthly basis, especially for people like us, it adds up. Still, you know, cash strapped and you know, still starting yeah. careers. It does. It does. It does add up. I mean, we still have to consider which is offering, uh, you know, ROI in terms of bang for buck and value for money. Yeah, but just I'm backing that they're gonna. 90 bucks a year, which is roughly what they're charging. People are just going to say, we get one thing. They have a lot. Okay, let's go for them. Especially if they're the only ones releasing big new stuff, like the couple of tentpole films, particularly the Marvel stuff. I think that's not an unreasonable gamble, which is disappointing, but it's not an unreasonable gamble. But that's the thing. Like, If I'm looking at streaming, my thinking is maybe we're different that way, that I'd rather pay for something like Movie and Criterion, something which is have more curated film streaming service, which otherwise I would not be seeing. You are different. Other places. Different. Huh? Sorry? Yeah, we're, we're not, that's not how the, most of the market's going to see it. Exactly. And maybe, maybe that's, that's where I'm mistaken, but I'm still thinking this is a misfire in that sense. The other aspect, which probably is a silver lining, which might be a good thing, is that then movies that are looking to release cinematically might look to film festivals more actively as an open screening window, uh, given that if streaming options are becoming more and more the norm, and if they want, you know, their films to be seen, even though for dedic from dedicated moviegoers and cinephiles like us, then film festivals might be a place or an avenue that more directors might consider for curated content to be going out to dedicated people who actually will turn up to see their movies. Yep. We're seeing a trend where cinemas, like for instance, the Hayden Orpheum this week are doing a lot of retro screenings, but they're also doing the Melbourne Cup in a couple of weeks. Cinemas are becoming a faster place where they're catering, they can charge a little bit more, but they're catering to niche events. They're catering, sorry, Chris, um, let me, what, yes? Oh, I was just going to say, that's actually why it's called event cinemas. That's why they renamed Greater Union is because we're going to focus on events as well as movies. Yep. And this is the thing. Cinemas have been generally going in this direction for quite some time. Um, it's been exacerbated by the pandemic. Now, if it's become, it becomes a place where it's a special event, where you go for a night out, where you definitely you get a meal, where you pay a little bit more, and we have an experience, film festivals aren't endemic to that. So festivals may have a boon where Disney, for the first time, or other places may say, hey we want the prestige of screening here and we want to test the waters. If people want to see it, they can pay, you can, we're going to get a cut of it, but they'll, we'll know they pay a bit, a little bit more. People are going to do it. So while mainstream cinema may not be doing as well in the near future, festivals may have a bit of an uptick and may very likely do so. I think it's more like that um, festivals will, as I think cinemas will be there for people who want to make a night of the big new releases on the streaming services. Um, potentially some small films that still cling to the theater exclusive model for a little while. Um, the, you, as you say, event screenings and film festivals, and that will be it. I can't see this not causing a massive downsizing of the theatrical market. It, it, it does, but it also kind of 
gives new opportunities for maybe film festivals to market themselves to not just niche audiences, but in a broader sec in, in a broader sector. So they might not have to use as much a bigger marketing budget because people will know that the only way they're going to catch a movie on the big screen is they attend this one screening at a film festival. There would be more hype. There probably would be multiple screenings of films in that sense. And I guess it'll benefit film festivals from expanding their audience market from just people who are, you know, snobs like us or film critics or in the minority to maybe uh, getting more people who are, you know, otherwise interested to see movies on the big screen because they want to make it a night out and not just uh, look at that tentpole two or three movies, but also something other than that. Well, the one big advantage I can see coming at it from a film critic and snob point of view is that I think this could effectively cause the end of the blockbuster era. Um, I don't think there'll be, yeah, I think budgets will just have to shrink theatrical and the whole market of something goes on theatrical, then it goes to video and then we sell the cable TV rights makes a lot of money. That's now just gone. You know, it's very yeah. simple. In any yeah. business, in any industry, you can't gamble a huge amount of your revenue on one project. You have to diversify. This was certainly the case for the studios in the 30s and 40s. In the 50s and 60s, it became a thing to have the Ben Hurst and Commandments and one-offs. In the 70s, it became the cachet and only again now to have all these big release films. We're going away from that trend. And every, now, every year, you'll see a Roland Emmerich or a James Cameron, and that'll be a gamble. People will see it because of the spectacle, but you won't see them all the time. That's not yeah. a it's a good it's a very good thing and something i've been hoping would happen for a long time because i think as you say a lack of diversification shows that the theatrical release model was not healthy um it's a really shareholder oriented model as opposed to one that comes from people who have any like connection to or love of the business it's i think it reflects a trend of people who've not come from the film industry becoming film company ceos where it's all just bottom line driven and it's well, if we make this $200 million movie, we could make a billion dollars profit, maybe, instead of let's make, you know, 10 movies that cost $20 million and you might make back $300 million. What you'll I mean, see is the focused release window. Films were released for a couple of weeks at a time. People will see them then. The 90-day re- gap or whatever it could be between release and home release is going to be decimated because it's going to be immediate. There's something the streaming services and others have been pushing for for a long time. COVID Disney. Yeah, like I was saying before, Disney have always pushed f- cinemas for bad deals on the cinema's end. And one of the ways they did this was trying to shrink the theatrical window down to just 90 days. It was one, it was six months, you know, like 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are other production houses, something like A24, their entire lineup is based on backing mid-budget indie movies, which kind of recovered their cost and mm. then some. So uh, you could argue that they've actually been more profitable in terms of the number of films that recover their cost yeah. than bigger studios that gamble on big productions and money, but only one of these films actually have some return and most of these films tank. Well, yeah, the thing is that Disney is the only company that has really been succeeding with blockbusters lately. Warner Brothers have been doing okay, but everyone's been chasing this Disney model and only Disney have re- really been able to nail it. So for them to suddenly pull out, create such a huge vacuum, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see. I wonder if, um, sorry, just one last point on this. 
I wonder if there'll be any studios that will steadfastly hold on and think now this is our chance and try to double down on the movie theater thing. Like if Disney aren't do- going to do it, fine. We're going to give you Batman in cinemas. It's going to be films that, and you actually see, and this is kind of sad, a push for films that are very predicated on seeing them in a cinema. Films like Rebecca, which definitely are approved by the cinema experience, which we're going to talk about in a bit, and films that are, I guess, more potentially suitable or can not lose as much in the translation on a small screen. And I don't just mean the scale of the storytelling or the visuals. I mean, films like, look, I, this isn't pejorative. I like Kajillionaire. We're going to talk about it in a bit. But Kajillionaire is a film that happens in a lot of segments. It's a film that I think people find very easily to watch for 10 minutes at a time, pause, come back to. like Not like sketches, but segments. It's very episodic in many ways. So I think you'll see a lot of films, writing trends move towards this, where people want to release these films um, for streaming. And you'll see films like Rebecca, where studios are very aware that this is something that we can market and is definitely um, exponentially better on a big screen, which I don't think is necessarily a good trend. I think films should be able to enjoy it simultaneously in both. I like Chris. I agree with Chris last week that cinemas have a way of focusing the mind and attention, and mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And I, but I, and I don't think filmmakers and studios should be looking to diversify and um, differentiate films in that respect. But I think, irrespective, I think that's what you're going to see happening. Um, the other big news of the week in regards to Disney, which has gone. More reported than what we've discussed, but I think crazy, crazy. But it's like, I, I, yeah, I think um, that's consequential. I think you're going to see more media attention on the Disney news we just discussed in December because Disney are going to cover it again during their earnings call. I, but I also think the, the news just sort of went under the radar. Like, I don't think people realize the ramifications of what that means for the industry, that how much of a contraction that's going to cause. But we'll see. There's sure to be more on this subject in future episodes of Film Fight Club. Indeed. The, the other Disney news, which has got more traction, but um, is important, but not going to have them as impact as what we've discussed, is that Disney have started to release disclaimers, non-optional disclaimers. You have to watch them before certain films with um, problematic content. I'm um, certainly so there's a lot of just these historical films, even some more recent ones, including the 1990s version of Aladdin. So this, this explains that there are elements that were contemporaneous at the time and certainly not appropriate then or now, and that wouldn't be reproduced now and directs you to reading on, um, on the subjects of historical discrimination, racism, and else. Um, we discussed this as an option as opposed to Disney and other studios pulling material or a, and or just not showing it. Certainly, I think this is a good thing. Credit where credit's due. Um, I've always, we've advocated on the show, certainly I have, that um, films shouldn't be withheld. Um, there, I so we, so Viewers should be encouraged to learn more about the historic context of the film and the film itself. Disney are encouraging people to do that by including disclaimers and extra information like this. Good on them. I think it's great. Yeah, it's the, the way forward to do it. The terminology that they use in their um, warning is very close to the message that Warner Brothers put before Looney Tunes shorts um, that were highly politically incorrect um, on their anthology home video releases. So I feel like Disney have looked to the best example of this and taken notes. Good on them. It's the, it's the way to go forward. Um, don't censor the past. Don't pretend these things didn't happen as they say in their statement. Um, I know a lot of the coverage has indicated that I've never seen this film, but that song of the South is still not available on Disney. I the song of the S- South will never be available 
I, I think that they've just decided that is never coming out. It's been, I think it was available in video in Japan or somewhere like that, like in the eighties. And since then there's been no release. I think that's forever staying in the vault. So that is the other Disney news of the week. Now we want to talk about the two major film releases. The second of which is Rebecca, which is the Ben Wheatley film, which will be on Netflix tomorrow. But the first, which is Kajillionaire, which is the new Miranda July film. It is starring Evan Rachel Wood, Gina Rodriguez, Deborah Winger, and Richard Jenkins. It is about a family consisting of the Winger, Jenkins, and Wood characters who live in Los Angeles, who get by on minor on minor scams minor tricks is they want to this is an oceans 11 they want to stay very much off the radar and just scrape by with getting 20 50 dollars here and there they live in a bubble factory which is all they can afford and slowly the film is about the evan rachel wood character old olio and then we will get into shortly and her burgeoning disenfranchisement and disenchantment with the only world she's known and what her parents have raised her in uh, Chris and I caught this last week and I've caught it more recently. I really liked this movie. Um, I there's a lot of very broad symbolism in it, but none of it's overwrought. It works in the story. There's very novel characters I don't think I've really seen anywhere else, particularly Emma Rachel Wood. It's my favorite performance of hers to date. Mm. She's, great. She's very good. Jenkins, he's always good. Um, Rodriguez, who I hadn't seen before, is fantastic. All the actors are good. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I'd recommend it. I loved it. Um, I think it sets up a crazy concept in a way, but um, it, it, it's so confident in showing the connections between the characters that it expects you to just go with it. So it never provides you with context for why these people don't just go and get a job. <laughs> um, and that's fine. You know, um, it, uh, her last film, the future I found really too self-consciously quirky. Um, this film is quirky, but there's a naturalism to it. Yes. Yeah. So that, that sells it. I never found that I found the quirky to be amusing as it was meant to be. I never found it to be overwhelming the narrative as it can in, in these kind of often Miranda July inspired Sundancey movies that we see a lot of. Um, yeah. I, I thought the, the character work was, was, really good um, in some of the nuances of the relationship between Evan Rachel Wood's character and her family. Um, and it's really all about the need for love and connection and how she's getting by without it and how she's rationalized this to herself. And all of these ideas have been put into this character and this performance. Yes, I, I do agree with you, Chris. And I think Part of, part of what makes this film good is the fact that, yes, we've seen that template of quirky film, quirky Sundance template before, but I think what makes this different and what makes Miranda July's films usually this different, I've read more, more of her books and more of her literature than her movies, but it's the same kind of humanism that is there underpinning the comedy and the humor because mm -hmm. she's not trying, and I think this is what sets apart a lot of the other films that are trying to be funny is that not everything is geared towards the punchline or geared towards undercutting the actual humanity of the situation. So uh, I remember one particular sequence in towards the beginning of the film, which is part of the larger con, where this Evan Rachel Wood's character goes 
to a massage parlor and things don't go according to plan. And you can sense the desperation in her, basically. And it's a beautiful mix of comedy that's not played for gags, but it's played as per situational drama where she can't get out of it and she knows if she doesn't get the result that she's after, uh, things are not going to turn out well for her. So there is a rising escalation of desperation and tension, which is mixed with comedy, humor, and pathos. And balancing all these elements was beautiful. It actually was, you're laughing not because you're laughing at these people, you're laughing basically at the situation these people find, find themselves in. And you laugh at it because the situation and what you're introduced to is so novel. I love how in this film, in so much in Hollywood, in even independent cinema, the idea of intimacy is codified in ideas of family and relationships. But this introduces us to novel circumstances we have to come acclimatized to where family relationships aren't intrinsically intimate. There's something more than that. There's something we grow to learn that intimacy is something that is earned. And we see the desperation in Aldolio, the Evan Rachel Wood character. And we think this is wrong. This is odd. They're just trying to set up a quirky circumstance, but no, we just have to come acclimatize to a character, which I haven't really seen very much of in film, who is someone who has just been starved of intimacy the whole life and therefore is happily in these desperate situations. He considers it a pinnacle of her life. And that's something once we're across that, once we're involved in that, it's something we can go along with. And while there are sad elements to it, as Vrat says, the pathos in scenes where she's just trying to scrounge a few dollars with someone who she fakes returning a, a piece of jewelry to, a hilarious seat in the massage parlor, um, and ex- um, several excellent uh, small scams, which again, in their storytelling and in their stylings novel, because all the time in film, it's trying to go for this big heist. Oh, a thousand here, 10,000 here. Yeah, it's not really a heist movie. Yeah, it throws some, as- some aspects of the heist movie, but it's about something really different. Oh, there's a great scene where like someone says, I can pay you 20 bucks. You just see them perk up like they were told yeah. to the lottery. 20 bucks, let's do it. What I find- yeah, it, it is a lot of money to a lot of people, but it's just here, um, it, the reaction is still very- um, Wow. All right. Let's, uh, this is, this is, this is made our week. What's interesting about it is it's very human, uh, humane and humanistic as, as we were talking about with, with all these quirky characters, strange characters. Um, but despite the subject matter, it never feels like it's overly sentimentalized. Yes. It, it could have easily become schmaltz <laughs> um, with a less sure-handed director, but um, it does not. I, I also think it's just such an, as you say, Glenn, it's subject matter that we don't usually see covered in film and characters and dynamics that we don't usually see covered in film. And I think it's really expertly judged how it develops because the story has the feeling of just following these characters to see what happens as opposed to this really um, deeply felt plot push but interesting things that complicate it come in at just the right time. Like when the Gina Rodriguez character is introduced, I thought, perfect. We have a character who seems completely outside of this Sundancey indie style of the characters we've come to met just in time to stop it from getting old. Um, and, and her dynamic is really strange. I guess she, Miranda July really minds the contrast of this person who sort of at first seems to be putting on like a generic uh, hot girl in LA archetype kind of persona. 
up against these weird, superstitious, withdrawn people. She it turns out to to have more depths than you might initially think, or that Evan Rachel Wood's character might initially um, think of her when when she's first introduced. But before all of those are revealed, Miranda July really mines the contrast for laughs. Yeah, I mean, I mean, essentially, what this film is typically about in in different ways is uh, the lens that we go to when we are desperate, right? Yeah. Whether it is his parents, Richard Jenkins and Deborah Winger's characters, who themselves are humanized because you can see and sense the desperation in their actions as well. And so you kind of also forgive them for the choices that they end up making as well. Mm-hmm. So And even though you do that, you also see the ramifications and the repercussions between the internal dynamics and how they're treating their own basically daughter Evan Richard Ward's character so basically, basically daughter that basically basically daughters because I don't want to call them call you know the character daughter because at no point do you feel that they're actually connected by any sense yeah I, apart I, from I, the fact that we're told that they are related I couldn't sense that any was any affection in any sense but no it's so, purely yeah. com- it's in many respects just a commercial arrangement which um, has its clinicalism which many would go for but which is absent um, the pure affection and intimacy that um, the most basic relationships apart. Um, there's a great scene speaking of the Gina Rodriguez character who I absolutely loved where she's introduced and she's talking about this man who's hitting on her and she's like, this happens all the time. Uh, she's conventional. She is a very attractive actress and woman and character. And the parents are looking at her like, what are you talking about? And it's, you're dealing with three central characters here where, and this is again, such a novel aspect of the storytelling where sexuality, where sex itself is just such an abstract, distant concept. You can argue that the characters are all asexual, irrespective. The dynamics that, uh, that sex bring to any normal circumstance, any of them, any films are um, just not present here. I found myself questioning, I was saying to Chris after this, um, Evan Rachel Wood too. Um, she is a conventionally attractive actress and there's a scene where the, uh, the parents have the wherewithal and goal to dress her up in a schoolgirl's uniform and send her out to try and charm and get cash or someone. And I thought, well, if they had this, had this thought, why wouldn't they then go out and say, you should go to any number of sinister circumstances. Then again, um, the work film's working on the levels and that it, these are just people who are devoid of um, how they, how they see sex is just so devoid from their worldview and that's unusual that's strange it's a novelty i love that that's so interesting why aren't there more films talking about uh, things like this about characters like this i was fascinated mm. to see it because the, the really centrally it's about a person um who because she's so distanced from those usual human concepts because of having these people as her parents of sex as well as familial love really any form of intimacy it's about the struggle to realize yourself when you lack any kind of validation in those ways. Um, you know what this film reminded me of? Uh, do you guys remember Briggsby Bear uh, a while yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and this reminded me a lot about that, especially, you know, uh, if you are brought up in an alternate universe, essentially, and then you suddenly come into contact with civilization in this sense. Uh, Evan Rachel Wood's character comes in contact with Gina Rodriguez, who comes from literally a different world than we mm. used to. So it is kind of a fish out of water coming into contact with you know another civilization story, but done in a much to reverse. Compact, <laughs> to reverse in a in a in a much more compact uh, 
uh, sort of mm. world it's without it being, you know, rebirth and regeneration. Yeah, than most films do. Yeah, definitely. Um, that those themes are sort of touched on with some not so subtle visual metaphors. But, but I, I feel like they were. I didn't mind because it was worked in, mm. and it made so much thematic sense in the narrative that it didn't feel like I'm I'm getting hit. And over the head with a hammer. And there's a great second act climax where um, Emma Rachel Wood has to perform a scene where I don't think I've ever seen a scene scripted like this where a character has to go through that emotional evolution. And I liked that. Like she's great. And she carried it off. I was fascinated to see it on screen. Her character's transformation is really subtly played by Emma Rachel Wood. Yes. Um, I also want to give, oh God, I, I should have taken a note of this. I, I'm looking up who wrote the, the music now. Um, Much better uh, music than the film we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Yes. Um, I, I thought the, the original score was really good. Uh, Neil Maseri? Yes. Uh, is it? Oh, hold on. Um, Emil, Emil. Right, Emil Maseri, right. Yeah, yeah I thought the, the musical score was fantastic. Um, also, I... I loved this the visuals in this film. I thought the um, cinematography was really subtly beautiful. Great use of the widescreen. Um, it, it's designed to be an unobtrusive, you know, script-driven movie where the the cinematography isn't massively calling attention to itself. But it still was very elegant. I thought, and the use of color uh, was really interesting. My two favorites were um, any scene with the bubbles, which reels recognize as soon as they see it in, in their, way, their living quarters. But also the wonderful scene, Evelyn Richwood has um, very baggy clothes and very long hair in this. And to avoid her landlord, she has to limbo. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Property. And every time she does it, it's great. Um, again, it's got great images throughout. She, yeah. She's a real filmmaker. You know, I think Miranda July probably makes, a, you know, has to make a decision about what story she's going to write and which story she's going to film. And I think this one definitely justifies itself as a film. Oh yeah. And one of the great interior scenes that didn't make it, is widescreen, uh, very similar to the, one of the, the, the final sequence in Parasite Respects, the sequence where they're all sitting around and just like having this happy dreamlike family existence, like the dad and he's- Oh, that was incredible. Amazing. That, that was amazing. Amazing, loved it, loved it. Yeah. Um, I just loved the early sequence where they're chatting in another person's house. Um, this, this, this is one of my favorite films of the year, actually. I think there's a lot. The sequence I didn't like. And the best, the best um, discussion we could do of this film would be a spoiler discussion, but alas, it's not yeah. out yet. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought it was very rich. And uh, there was a lot. And I think we could, yeah. go, we could at least talk about uh, the whole subversion of intimacy for at least half an hour. Oh, know. yeah. And the family because dynamics. Family dynamics. And, and, and that's done through Call, yeah. a lot of fun things. Call, the, the story behind the name is... The name, yeah. I don't, I don't want to talk too much about the name yeah. myself personally. I want to leave that for people watching yeah. the film. You, you'll enjoy it. You'll I mean, I mean, ju I mean just the fact that Rachel Wood's character is wearing baggy clothes almost throughout the film, which kind of... <laughs> Super um, baggy. She looks, she looks honestly like avant-garde fashion kind of. <laughs> Yeah, but also that's so deliberate in the sense that you were like, it's it's never remiss to you that this person would not be aware of her own sexuality because of the way she dresses. Oh yeah, 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 and, and it's, it's, it's so obvious. It shows really discomfort with yeah. the with how Gina Rodriguez dresses and acts. Yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't say she's not aware. I'd say she's not comfortable. That hasn't been encouraged to express it. Yeah, and certainly yeah. Yeah. Right. So but the fact that that's not. 
you know, basically drilled into you is was nice. Like, you know, you could you could draw your own conclusions, which is nice. <laughs> that is Kajilina. It is in cinemas tomorrow. Go see it. The next film we're talking about is closing in cinemas today, unfortunately. It'll be on Netflix tomorrow. You may be able to catch a late session at the Ritz or Dandy, and that is Rebecca, the new film from okay, director. On Netflix, if you have it, if you mm-hmm. have it. Like you're not missing out. It's fine. It's totally a Netflix movie, but we'll get into that. <laughs> Much better seeing it on the big screen. Um, There's a new film from Ben Wheatley. It is the adaptation of the Daphne du Maurier novel. There have been various adaptations. The first one was by actually Orson Welles on the radio. Hitchcock famously made it in the 1940s, still definitive and best version. Uh, there was a version of Charles Dance and Diana Rigg some years ago. And now this is the latest. It stars Army Hammer, Lily James, Sam Riley. Kristen Scott Thomas and Dowd and it is about it is set in the 1930s it is about a young woman who's had a um, who's been hard done by in life who's a lady's companion accompanies um, the endowed character on a holiday and meets and falls for handsome dashing recent widower Maxim de Winter she later soon accompanies him back to his beautiful estates of estates Mandalay old money where she meets the housekeeper, played by Kristen Scott Thompson's Danvers and others, many of whom remind her that she is never going to measure up or be as well-bred or talented or beautiful as his widow, Rebecca, who was the lady of the house. Now, there's a lot that can be... I don't know where to start with this. I'm going to say there are things I didn't like about it. There are a lot of things I really liked about it. I think with any remake... So it's not a remake. With any new adaptation, you have to justify why it exists. Is there enough different? I think there is enough different. I think a lot of it hues very closely to Hitchcock's version and a lot of it offers stuff that was, either wasn't offered or couldn't be offered during the era of the Hayes Code and else. That's the biggest area where it distinguishes itself, that it doesn't have to obey the code. That, um, But I don't think that this new movie, um, it's hard to talk about this without spoiling it, but I don't think that this new film really takes as full advantage of that as it could have. I feel like the original novel had a moral ambiguity that the Hitchcock film couldn't have. And I feel like while there's an attempt to put that into this film, it ultimately feels too smoothed over and reassuring in the dramatic arc. I didn't feel that, that real complication at the point where, where this hiccup in the narrative is introduced in terms of my sympathies. And I don't think feel like we were really made to. I think that's largely due. I, I, I will get to the one aspect of Army Hammer's casting I really like, but I think a lot of it's due to Hammer's casting. Hammer should have been cast in this role for a lot of reasons. Number one, he's not that good an actor compared to Laurence Olivier or Charles Dance, the others who came before. At the crucial moment of revelation that Chris referred to, remember Olivier was offered a beautiful unbroken shot opposite Joan Fontaine. They actually focused on Lily James. Yes, she's more talented. Yes, she's the more consequential person in the narrative, but it's Maxim DeWint who's the key person at this point. And while um, Army Hammer does bring great physicality to the role. It's a very British role. It's about the Maxim de Winter. He's reserved. He's internally tortured, whereas Hammer is just too young and strong and dashing and handsome and just seems mildly befuddled when he should seem tormented. The one thing I do like about it is that 
uh, when they cast Olivier, he was meant to look a lot older than Joan Fontaine. He's only actually 10 years older than her. Same with the Charles Dance casting. Army Hammer and Lily James are intended to look the same age. They're only three years apart. And I think they'd emphasize the tragedy of lost youth, which is an aspect of the novel, an aspect of the original film and the other adaptations, but which um, gives way a bit to ideas of changing lifestyles, um, changing ideas of regalness which i think is the more substantive elements of the novel so i don't think hammer should be in cast but his physicality and his age i think did bring some things to it i um ultimately found this pretty lifeless to be honest i when you were talking before about movies being um enhanced by the cinema screen and how this film was i didn't really feel that because to me this basically had the the netflix curse Felt like a TV movie. I will. I, I feel like I, I want to reverse some criticism I put of um, that the devil all the time. I think I said that that felt like a TV movie. No, that felt like a real movie, um, despite not being very good. This, to me, has the kind of cheapness in the feel. Like it, it, I, it feels like, you know, a new BBC TV movie of Rebecca. I would reserve that criticism for individual scenes where I don't know why. Um, there's some scenes that are shot naturally and beautifully. There are some scenes that are so obviously CGI. Otherwise, there's, and those are really yeah, bad. There's, there's a shot towards the end where she's walking across a marsh and it just looks so fake. Yeah. And it's not charmingly fake, like all the matte paintings and models representing, um, oh God, what's it called again? Mandalay. Yeah, in the Hitchcock film. It's just ugly, garish, cheap CG fake. Yeah, I think... On, on this oh man the, the gothic the, yeah there's a fundamental disconnect and it's about the gothic element mm. at the center of this film um i do think it is a good film and i do think it's hard to and i'll get into that in more detail i do think it's hard to screw up the story which is just amazing but there's a fundamental issue at the middle of this film which no one's talking about rebecca is a gothic story but importantly it was written in 1936 and sorry 1938 and set in 1938 hitchcock made the film in 1940 it was set contemporaneously ben wheatley's film is by consequence of being made 80 years later, a period piece. The whole point of Gothic fiction, and certainly that film, the Rebecca, the Hitchcock film, is saying that this old style of thinking, this old regalness, these old money people, this is a bad lifestyle, this should die. And this, however, Ben Wheatley is in Downton Abbey mode, where actually Downton Abbey got the balance cut right on this theme, but the emphasis, particularly in the visuals, is, is romanticizing it, which is not the point. Hitchcock played the film in shadows for good reason. The gothicness and opulence is supposed to be dark and foreboding. It's not supposed to be aspirational. I think Wheatley didn't realize this, and I think that's a problem. But I, for, on balance, for the reason I'm going to discuss, I do think it's, a, it's still a very good film. That's a good point about the gothic. Um, I still feel like he mostly tried to present the house in a kind of dark visual palette and a in dark shadowy way, not to the extent of the Hitchcock film. But ultimately, the visuals in this felt very flat. The Hitchcock film, um, the Hitchcock film is much better, actually. I, I mean, no question. Yeah, it's much more entertaining. It's been eight um, years. Okay just, for a new yeah, despite th this film goes out of its way with a lot of contemporary techniques, like it has some jump scares and like shock audio cuts and flashy edits and weird color grading for the dreamy, spooky parts and stuff like that. And yet the Hitchcock film with its 1940 pacing is still more entertaining. It's just much better dramatically. There are, there are some things that I prefer about this film, like at the beginning, um, the... Uh, what's the name of um, the employer of... Oh, Andow's character. 
yeah, and Dad's character, yeah. it's a little bit less, um, it's a little bit less cruel in its depiction of her than the Hitchcock film. Um, she's <laughs> a little more sad in this. Yeah, she's the other one. She was more callous. That's yeah. I, I just felt less cruelty in the way she was depicted. But uh, the performance in the original film is so great and entertaining. So I, I, this isn't so much an improvement as it's something different that I appreciated. That's my argument for this film. There's enough here that is a, a distinct that makes it more than worth the while. Chris, you referred earlier to the moral ambiguity, which um, they, because they changed the essential aspect of the second act twist, mm. you couldn't have in the... Actually, I would argue that the way Hitchcock managed it was very good because it still lends moral ambiguity. Was the person in question lying? Was the other person... Yeah which has a dark gothic element to it this brings more moral ambiguity to this universe as does um and she's so good she's only in a few scenes but keely hawes who plays de winter's sister she strikes the right tone she adds a lot to it um i like the moral ambiguity present within here you see a point in the narrative where you start to question whether the protagonists are the moral bastions of story or else that is great you don't see that a lot certainly from this time i think the film handled this a lot better than an adaptation simply for hearing so very so closely to de Maurier's very clinical and very well-constructed novel um and i appreciate that i also think it dealt with the um there's a, so the hitchcock film was made at the time when look we, we're, we're living in a, an age which is seeing feminism differently with feminism different problems for good reason and also i think the directors of the film were very conscious that we're living in a post me too world um, the revelation has problematic elements, which I think a mainstream studio will deal with very differently now than they would have in 1940. And certainly that's on display. Um, I think the film acknowledging this and incorporates it quite well, particularly with uh, some comments from Mrs. Danvers about how Rebecca is um, boundary pushing, moving forward. I think this added a great element to it, which was really absent from the 1940 version. And I appreciate it. It's just another element of how this film was different and distinct and good and new. The area where I think this this movie really distinguishes itself from the original and actually comes alive is a depiction of the uh, law case at the end. I think Sam Riley's really good as Favell, um, and his take, which actually has some passion and anger behind it instead of the caricature toff from the original, um, is one of the things that justifies this version. Um, I, I think that section had an intensity. The movie started to actually come alive. My problem before that is that um, it feels kind of, like I was saying before, just kind of lifeless, just kind of dead. Like I think one of the main areas where Weirdly wanted to distinguish this version was um, in making you really feel the the love between the two leads. Um, it goes for a more, it's just kind of taken for granted in the original film. And this film spends more, you know, more time on, on their being physical with each other and at the beginning of the film tries to sweep you up in the romanticism of it but I never felt that love it turns out to be crucial to the film in terms of how it ends but I didn't feel it so ultimately the, this this movie just feels kind of dead and the, to me feel, fails at what's clearly one of its major goal, uh, ambitions I agree that the being able to show intimacy as it is depicted in this film enlivens it and adds a lot to it that Hitchcock version couldn't. I think there actually is a lot of chemistry between the actors. I think this is mostly down to James. He's just a lot 
a bit much better actor performer than Hammer. I wish there was more chemistry. Again, I agree. Hammer could have been better cast by any number. The Hammer could have been better cast by any number of performers. But I do think that exists strongly between them. And I think you see it in the seething anger which Hammer managed well, and seething drive, seething to protect himself and his new wife as you see, at least what it appears to be, um, later as you go on into the narrative. Yeah, um, the other, sorry, I was going to say the, another way that I think this film's trying to distinguish itself is in the, um, you know, visually, there are these, you know, dream sequence interludes. They've tried to really like ratchet up, here's the gothic, oh, it's spooky. But I found all of those really hokey. Um, none of them were in any way impactful in terms of scaring me or unsettling me it, it felt just like uh leftovers from from crimson peak yeah okay so crimson i'm glad you're on crimson peak. crimson peak uh, owes a lot to rebecca as does a lot of gothic gothic it also oh, is it notorious the other one that it, there was another hitchcock movie that it really bit hard for the plotting yeah a lot of films uh riff on rebecca interestingly the translators which i saw yesterday finally actually riffs directly on rebecca a lot rebecca has influenced a lot of films a lot of literature now importantly i love gothic fiction um, I'm glad, I don't like the scare bits, I agree with Chris. I'm glad those were um, confined to only aspects of the film. I think They're short, but they're just so cheap. I, I think this is going to be billed badly as a gothic horror. It's not, it's a gothic romance, like Portrait of Lady on Fire, which is a gothic romance. It didn't need to have scary bits. I'm um, certainly Celine Sciamma got that right. It was just, there were eerie bits, but there were not moments that had to be scary. As for the scary moments, there were bad. Um, I actually kind of reminded of the um, faux jump scares in game night even and it's only a bit too harsh but some of the moments young frankenstein like the shelf scene um when i was watching the film i was watching it with um a companion who is known to chris and brought who has long dark hair and at the, she was happened to be brushing her hair at the moment that um mrs dandrews was commenting on brushing rebecca's long dark hair and i turned to her and she gave me this marty feldman-esque glare and i think that a lot of the sh quote-unquote shocks in the film kind of operate on that level they're just more hoking and fun than they were actually oh i feel unsettled now the film doesn't need to be um un doesn't need to get you out of your seat it just needs to be unnerving and i think those are the moments where wheatley just most dramatically is particularly a scene in the shack which is just so badly judged i'm talking about the first scene in the shack I think the biggest misstep in this film was having, uh, and maybe this is the interpretation that Wheatley is going with. Uh, I just didn't like what he did with uh, in the ghost of Rebecca and, and how he would like to incorporate that into the narrative. I thought that was pretty dumb. Like it, it, it really undermined a lot of the experience and a lot of the, missteps of the film are related to how he handled that element of the narrative i felt because it, it it was going into sort of mystery thriller territory which was uncalled for and was completely, completely gimmicky and just felt cheap if nothing else i mean it's not if this ties into the the like dream sequence stuff right like the the there, there's only if like there is small hinting towards like oh is that Rebecca's ghost a few points in the narrative but it's one of those like it's a lot of things about this film <laughs> like when you started talking about that I didn't know what you were talking about then I was like oh right I remember those things yeah a lot of the aspects of this film don't feel that well thought out 
Like they're just yeah, totally. like, like yeah. they like they're interesting ideas that could have been totally committed to, but they haven't been. So they're just kind of like weird little surface elements. Like maybe this will make this new version different. Because, because so, that took away from the the relationship drama aspect, which I feel is the crux of the narrative. But well, the thing is, like fundamentally, I mean, we, we have to talk about Mrs. Danvers, right? Kristen yeah. Scott Thomas was great, but fundamental, and um, I liked that her take was more grounded and less absurd than yeah. in the Hitchcock film. Agreed. But but I think the psychodrama of the games between her and the narrator were less, less interesting than in the original film. All right. So I agree that the relation dynamics and just knowing that a ghost in the sense that the ghosts you bring to relationships of the past are still present within you in your world um, are so much more interesting than the faux scary bits or intendedly scary bits. Just her going into Rebecca's room and seeing the gown laid out or looking at the embroidered handkerchief is so much more impactful. I prefer Kristen Scott's Thomas performance to the other to the performance in the original film. I think while it's on the matter of uh, Mrs. Danvers, uh, this is one of the narratives where the queer reading has been very predominant throughout various interpretations. It's hard to avoid it. It's hard to avoid it, and it was hard. To, and I think there's the same emphasis given to it in this and the previous film. I don't disagree with it. I think, however, Rebecca is a film and narrative that is all about the language of regalness and letting regalness and uh, die. Rebecca is a figure who is treated and discussed in every respect like a godlike figure. And it's about letting those sort of mentalities of we love Henry VIII, the patrilineal heritage and inheritance die. Um, I don't think the queer reading is inconsistent with that. I think it is present. I just think it loses some pride of place to um, the overwhelming thrust. I did the Kristen Scott Thomas was good. I wish she'd had a little more scope to work with. I wish we'd got a small time with her. I loved her the, the famous scene at the windowsill. I think she handled that very well. Um, even the, the terrible mirror scene, which just didn't need to be in there. I think after John Wick, every film needs a mirror scene. Um, and she nonetheless carried it even Hitch if the direction couldn't. Talking about the queer reading, Hitchcock apparently wanted to push that further in the 40s film, but just couldn't. No, wouldn't have been able to. Yeah. Um, it, was very, it, was, it was obvious enough there and here. I think the same sort of subtlety and emphasis was given to it in both films. Yeah. I, I think to really work this film, firstly, it needed to be more striking and distinguish itself visually. Secondly, it needed to go much deeper into the psychodrama um, because I, I wonder if there's a little bit of a clash in terms of um, how this story works and filming it where it's driven by these character dynamics but it's also very plotty you know it, it suddenly the narrative gets swept up and it becomes all about this major plot turn and it completely flips on its head i feel like it, it may just be a very hard story to to nail on film because i don't think that section even works that well in the hitchcock version and i thought it worked better in this film at least initially but um is it odds with the rest of the film i wonder if rebecca is just something that maybe works better as a novel I think it works better. I think the particular story works really well as a novel for two reasons. Number one, Rebecca, like it's it's such a trope of cinema, a great one. Hitchcock will return to it 20 years later in North by Northwest, where there's a central character who doesn't appear by consequence of the story in the narrative. And with the novel, you're left more open to imagination, whereas in official format, it's very awkward to constantly discussing Rebecca and not have her, even though it's a great conceit. But more than that, 
Um, and I, I actually didn't realize this when I watched the official film. I only realized it watching it this this film. The central character isn't named. And it's yeah. like layer cake. We don't know the name of Lily James character. It's always the Mrs. De Winter the second. Everything is subsumed by Rebecca. That's something that works quite well in narrative format, but it comes very distracting when people have to dance around the name. And I do like <laughs> the scene where he refers to as little four. I think it's the one scene, ham one of the scenes Hammer handled really, really well, but it's awkward in the film where characters just be recalling, hey, Deirdre, hey, Joanne, <laughs> and they just can't do it. It's all well, it, hey, hey, on the page. It worked in Tenet, but I'm shh. No, but no, 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 it, no it, I know, I know it didn't work. That was, that was well by the comedy dramas there. That was <laughs> no, my punchline. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, what I, 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 they left out a little bit of this dialogue, I think, um, compared to the original film, but um, you know, uh, actually, no, it was here. When they talk about how beautiful Rebecca was, I'm thinking, is she, could she be that much prettier than Lily James? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like they've cast serious eye candy people in in these lead roles like lily james is so beautiful that when ami hammer says yep marry me come with me you're like all right sure he's he's like mega hunk she is gorgeous they go together it's beautiful movie stars and and they're, they're like yes rebecca she was so beautiful like how yeah it, it, was it, she? it's like you know? How can someone who's already so beautiful have a complex about someone else's beauty who could not be any more beautiful than you already are in that sense? It's hard to imagine. All right, a few things that I love how whenever we talk about a Lily James and whenever we talk about a Lily James film, we just comment, yeah, she's- I was thinking this watching the movie. I was like, you know, yeah. I, I'm going well, to stunning. again comment on how beautiful Lily James is. Yeah, yeah. Go, go see our and um, what was the terrible Beatles film yesterday? And also um, that uh, Emma. Driver. But yeah, in Emma, yesterday, it well. was way more apparent. I think in yesterday, he wasn't in it. Wasn't she? No, that was. Uh, oh, um, uh, my other crush. Uh, sorry, I forgot the name. Uh, from uh, Ghost, not Ghost. Um, the Mike is your other crush, right? Um, no, she's. Uh, oh, Anya Taylor. Anya Taylor Joy. Yeah. yeah. No, You're right. Um, right. This is a playing Furiosa. Yeah, Lily James was actually in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies opposite Sam Riley, which is very distracting, who played Mr. Darcy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's odd casting that regard, um, also with the fact that she was in Downton Abbey. It's weird seeing her go down and comment on the sources in the kitchen. I do want to return to this tangent you brought up, but Chris? Did anyone seeing Sam Riley think it was Luke Evans? No. He looked okay. so much like Luke Evans with but that. Luke Evans, is, Luke Evans is a giant. He's like a tank. True. But Luke Evans has also been in other Ben Wheatley films. So I think my mind just went, oh yeah, there's Luke Evans. Check He's just a lot out. better acting than Luke Evans. A lot better. Sam Riley's great. Yeah. Right. But probably I not do. as good as singer. Luke Evans, not many people know, but is an amazing singer. Well, he, he should sing in every film then. Um, yeah. So that's <laughs> harsh. Uh, well, anyway. <laughs> we've just like go downhill after Lily James is so attractive. Okay. So let's discuss everything else. <laughs> Let's talk about how Lily James is paid. For real, the eye candy aspect of this is going to be a big sell. The picture on Netflix is like Army Hammer, Lily James. Like hey, hey, Joan Fontaine. Most people. Is, oh, so was very attractive. She, yeah, she was. But most people on <laughs> Earth yeah, are going to find either Army Hammer or Lily James gorgeous. That's a big part of the hook of this movie. All right, several <laughs> things to that. Um. I agree, but I don't think it's an issue. Like Fifty Shades of Grey, but anyway. 
but I don't think it's an issue for these reasons. Number one, the film is playing on an outmoded, they're not so much, but now certainly outmoded, more outmoded ideas of class. It didn't matter that Lily James's character was stunning. It was that she was, and it is very well established from such a low <laughs> class to Rebecca. Poor. Yeah, she's one of the poor. Um, the thing with, the other thing aspect, there's, there, oh, so there's nothing in the film, there's no point in the film where there's just anyone says- at any point. That's the other problem. All right. Okay, there's no point in the film where anyone says you're ordinary, you're not that attractive. There's nothing where it's you're not an attractive person. I think also Lily James, yes, she's very attractive, but again, Rebecca, she's referred to in this language of such classical beauty, of this godlike prowess and presence that nothing can quite compete. And that's the sort of thing we're up against. However conventionally attractive you can be, you can't in this world, in this idea of regalness where uh, everyone talks about people in the language of Cleopatra, um, which again, the film is pushing against. The film, definitely de Maurier, certainly um, Hitchcock's retelling and aspects of Whitney's, there's a disdain for this. And that's what they're emphasizing. It's saying that these ideas, these ideations are outmoded and we want to move beyond this. And I think um, there's nothing inconsistent with that with casting James. I think she was well cast. I think she's a very good actress. I think she was good in this as she is in well, everything she does, even though she doesn't always choose um, great material. So she I, I like takes she probably takes the best material that's offered to her. Yeah. Um. Uh, what was the terrible uh, Churchill film she did? Uh, Darkest Hour. Oh yeah, but yeah. you know that that I would do that if I were in her position. Like that's a movie that had a best actor performance in it. Yeah, I think it's one of the best debates. Um. So other aspects. There's we I, we talked about the sister and Achille Hawes and how great she is. Um. It's, I love stuff. There's another gothic film out there. There aren't a lot, especially gothic romances. I mean, with Crimson Peak and Cure for Wellness not doing so well, the studios are very adverse, but they went for this one because it is such a wreck. Actually, that's another thing. Rebecca's not that recognizable a property. It's a classic among critics and that sort of world, but it doesn't, isn't that mainstream a classic? Rebecca? No. It won Best Picture. It won Best Picture, but no one talks about it like any of Hitchcock films post uh, 56. One, they're American, uh, <laughs> which makes a difference in terms of getting cultural attention. This is an American Rebecca film. is American film, yeah. It's his first but, American film. But it's his first American film, and for all intents and purposes, it's British. It just has David Selznick producing. Well, actually, no, I, I disagree. This is a film that Hitchcock was very deliberate in choosing it. The whole idea was he was coming to America and saying, this is a film about American-style values overtaking British-style values. He made this his first American film. He says, I can do British pomp and fanfare, but I want to move to this sort of uh, morality. And he certainly did. We saw him experiment much more from reality tales and go to much darker territory against the Hayes Code later in his career. This reminds me, um, talking about the British versus American, um, that the new film kept a change that Hitchcock made so that the unnamed narrator's employer is British instead of being a crass, rich American from the book. Good. Good. Makes, makes, again, makes it more... About British. It does make it more interesting, I think, because it makes it more about the British class struggle that perseveres ever onward. Um, but um, yeah, um, the, the uh, Hitchcock letter films are the ones that critics obsess over because his obsessions become the defining characteristic. They some, sometimes become a bit more experimental in terms of filmmaking. And yeah, they're Hollywood productions. Yeah. And they're more recent. 
all these, you know, there's a reason why people maybe don't talk about Rebecca so much, but I would still say that it's a fairly well-remembered film. It should be. People should see, I think people should see both people. If you see this one, certainly before or after see the Hitchcock film. Um, just another side note on more the narrative than the film itself, but it's, it's anthem for any, it's, it's, it's endemic for any adaptation. Um, a lot of films focus on the event of losing someone close. This film significantly <laughs> focuses on the aftermath and impact Holly and the consequence of it. And I think that's not something that's always done. I think it's more important than more often more just engaging and interesting from a narrative, emotional, dramatic perspective. And I like that about this. Um, we don't meet Rebecca. True. And that's. I was worried they were going to flash back to her at one point. I'm there was glad. a moment where there was some shaky shot of Lily James and uh, it looked a bit darker and I couldn't really see her face. And I thought the style was changing, but it was probably just some second unit shot that found its way into the film. And I thought, oh God, are we about to see her? Like, was those shots from behind? <laughs> that, I think that's what Brett's talking about with like the ghost. Oh, I, I, those? I, those were eerie. I liked those. Really? I, to me, it just didn't do anything. Like I didn't feel much of anything watching this film until the law case started. It, it wasn't a ghost. It was Lily James' imagination. But in the narrative, it's sort of plays. It's 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 that role of the ghost, whether or not it's literally a ghost. Yeah. I, I, but the imagery in that scene worked really well. Like the dark dress, the long flowing hair. It's just that classic gothic element like Jessica Chastain in, again, Crimson Peak. The, what, the best bit about that film when she's running down the stairs with the candelabra and the keys jangling. Like that, that, that worked for me more than the dream sequences involving the floor and the sleepwalking and all that. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, so the one thing I really didn't like about this, the one thing I really didn't like about it, was the final tacked on scene. The Hitchcock film ended so well. The thing is Hitchcock, Hitchcock has this brilliant thing again and again and again, that he always ends the movie at the point where you want it to end. Like often when I'm watching movies, I think like, man, imagine the impact if they just cut it then. Like there's a point that fits the the story that makes the biggest statement. Again, North by Northwest. Oh yeah, that's an example I would go to. Um, but films feel the need to give you the, and then they lived happily ever after, and a little bit of like unwinding time so that you're well and truly done with the narrative by the time it's over. I love um, the final shot of Rebecca in 1940. God damn. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, the final shot of Rebecca is, is, sums it all up. There was no need for the story to go on any further, and it, and it focused on the major theme of the film. The ending of this Vertigo one. Vertigo does it best. Vertigo? Vertigo does it best. But yes, Rebecca did it amazingly. North by Northwest is such such a goddamn woody ending. I I, I, Trippy, I can't I talk it. about it now. It's so brilliant, so cinematic as well. But anyway, um, the the ending of the new one is also designed to say, oh, you know, let's focus on the theme. But it just speak, and in this case, it's this theme of love. But it just speaks to how little I was feeling that versus the Hitchcock movie bringing it all down to like the battle of wills between the unnamed protagonist and Mrs. Danvers. I felt that. And so that the ending of the Hitchcock movie had impact and the, the, it just kind of felt like, like a just belly flop ending, you know, like who cares? At the ending, the last scene should just be X. one. Yeah. 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 But it's a lost art to have such 
a knack for impactful endings as Hitchcock did. So that is Rebecca. Streaming on Netflix tomorrow. Yeah. Kajillionaire is in cinemas from tomorrow. So you can catch both or either. And certainly do catch the original Hitchcock version, 1940. I haven't seen, listen to the Orson Welles version. Um, I love that there's the BBC version with Charles Dance and Diana Rigg. I love that Tywin Lannister and Lady Elena Tyrell were jousting decades before um, Westeros. But all these very British actors were. And yeah, we'll be back next week with more movies. Let us know what you want us to fight about, talk about, or elaborate on. What if you disagree with us? If you furiously agree with one or all, or more of us? Yeah, I mean, given the fact that uh, I think a few of the movies, Trial of Chicago Seven, now Rebecca, will be on Netflix or are already on Netflix. If you've seen them and you disagree with our take, or you think we are categorically wrong or mistaken. Do let us know and we will uh, politely... We will fight you. We will politely have a discussion. Come to your house. We won't come to your house. No. But if you give us your address and you ask us really nicely and you you uh, present us with a... Tea. You know, yeah, you present us with Footage a tea. of Luke Evans singing. Right. And also, if maybe if you sign Hopefully, if you're a... in New South Wales, not in Melbourne or Victoria, we will definitely... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's one thing. And if, if, if you sign a waiver... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> allowing us to come to your house. Yeah, if, if you're if you're a Wodonga, don't troll us, please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but like you know, if this you're one be of a, oh, twenty sorry. people that we can you can invite, then yeah, if one of the twenty will be there. I reckon uh, this could be one of the prizes for the those who are willing to donate six hundred dollars in the name of Film Fight Club. Yeah, Film Fight Club will come to your house at your at your invitation, and and we them. won't leave. We'll now live in your house and produce Film Fight Club from there. We'll just watch movies with you. Actually, we'll totally, yeah, we'll totally just hang out and produce an episode there. Why not? Yeah, we will, we will record an episode in your house. But, but once you get sick of us... You can ask us won't... to leave and we won't be offended. Uh, well, I, I was going to go in a different direction, but uh, sure, let's, let's, let's tell them that for now. <laughs> yes. You can see how ominously dark we all look at our screen. <laughs> Virat, Virat is just pure black. Virat's been getting darker. Oh, I can see a little bit of blue. We discuss a gothic fiction, so it has to be. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is, is, is what's that? Mrs. Danvers? Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, Kristen Scott Thomas is so good. She should have a bigger career over here, I think. She's such a good character actor. She's good. I liked her in Salmon Fishing in Yemen. She was the only good thing about that movie. Never saw it. Good, good call. Hmm. Actually, she was the only good thing about, um, except for that one great fight scene, the only good thing about Only God Forgives was her. Yeah. Luke Evans was going to be the lead in Only God Forgives instead of Ryan Gosling. I can't imagine the movie being worse, Chris. Yeah, I mean, it's, I find that movie at least interesting. I mean, like, is, is it's not good, but quite. it's interesting. Like there's confusing choices throughout. So I find it engaging on some level. I mean, uh... <laughs> Who is uh, Elle Fanning to this day is only playing her role from the Neon Demon reprised in every other film since. So there is, there is I guess, some credence to Nicholas Winding Reference's everlasting uh, characterization. Everlasting love. You made Bronson, so I'm happy. So <laughs> um, the only film of his I really, and then in Neon Demon that I actually like. God, yeah, Drive was bad. God, God really? I've, I, I liked Drive. Ugh. 
I haven't seen it since it came out, except for bits of it on TV. But I, I he appears through the motel after all the carnage. It's just so bad. He's not cool. He's just, just he's just uninteresting. I think the I think the movie is cool as opposed to the character. I, there's be, plenty of be better films about cars. I, I should revisit Drive. Actually, I'd be curious. Maybe next year for the tenth anniversary, we can do it. But I'd be curious. Oh God, um, is it? Yeah, if you want to troll Glenn, um, possess you know, do the six hundred lifetime membership and then make us watch Drive. I'm I'm curious how I'd feel about it now in the light of um, all the fetishization of his character in the movie that's happened since. Yeah. I think uh, the person who wrote the screenplay for Drive. Yeah. It's Animani, yes. That's that's yeah, he made the Two Faces of July or whatever. Which is the, another gothic uh, film based on Patricia Heisman's novel, which is not uh, Fantastic Mr. Ripley. Most adaptations of her novels haven't been that good, including Carol. Hot take. <laughs> wow, that, that is a hot take. Before Everybody... we get into Carol, we're going to say goodnight. <laughs> <laughs> so have, have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. And uh, yeah, Rebecca... Netflix, Kajillionaire, Cinemas, 2SCR, Broadway. 2SCR.com slash Radiothon. Yes. 2020. 2020. 2020. Good night. Yes. We, uh, we're still here by the cinemas or not. See ya. Bye. <laughs>